Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the Watt. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now, you're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. There was a report today that Aaron's condition on returning is that you're no longer the GM. Has that been communicated to you in any way with, with your communication with him, with Mark, or with anyone? You know, uh, Aaron hasn't said anything like that to me. I want nothing more to, to, than to see him back in a, in a Packer uniform. And that stuff is out of my control. I mean, my future uh, is a, a beautiful mystery, I think. Is there any scenario that you can see trading Aaron Rodgers this offseason? No, no, Ryan, I appreciate the question, but no, we're not going to trade Aaron Rodgers. That's just a little bit of what has transpired over the last eight days since the pin was pulled on the Aaron Rodgers grenade and thrown into the Packers' nest. It's going to go off at some point. It arguably already has. There's a chain reaction that still needs to be resolved. He's Peter King. I'm Mike Florio. We are here with you for the next two hours. The show is PFT Live. The network is Peacock or NBCSN or Sky Sports or Sirius XM 211 or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, Peter. Welcome back. Missed you last Friday. Got to talk to you for a little bit in the airport in Atlanta. Great to have you for the next two hours. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, it's uh, there seems to have been a lot that's gone on in the last eight days, mostly centered around a quarterback in Wisconsin. But I'll tell you, it has been fascinating to me to watch this week um, everything that has been said about Rodgers and all the different reports there are. But I still think, I, I forget when you wrote this. It was quite a while ago. But... You know, Aaron Rodgers needs to come out and say what he wants. And that hasn't changed. And until that happens, so much of this is going to be speculation. Like, Mike, I have been told, stay away from the contract. It's not a part of this of this dissatisfaction. You know, don't worry about the contract. That's not it. And and so, but, you know, I don't know that. You know, I I'd like to be able to hear from the guy whose life is basically being affected by all this, what exactly is going on. So hopefully we'll hear that soon, but I'm not counting on it. Peter, I would say at a minimum, the contract is a symptom 
of the deeper problem between Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. And to the extent that I wrote that he needs to come out and talk, I would have mentioned your point from a couple of weeks ago that we know that Aaron Rodgers wants to be the permanent host of Jeopardy because he says so. And the dichotomy between the candor, the bluntness, the honesty and transparency that we see from him when it comes to something that could be fairly regarded as almost a pipe dream, because I don't think he's the favorite or even the second favorite, although the ratings did very well when he was on the show. But that's something he's not afraid to come out and tell us he wants. And to put that against this beautiful mystery and the ambiguities and the vague notion. He had a chance last Saturday. Churchill Downs could have got on camera with Mike Tirico and said, I don't get this. I don't know what's going on here. The contract doesn't have anything to do with it. There are other issues, but these aren't unusual for a guy that's been with the team for 16 years. Look at what happened with Tom Brady. Could have done all that. Instead, spoke to Mike Tirico, and Tirico said on the air, there is a fissure, there is a chasm between Rodgers and the front office. That's the record. That's the narrative. And Rodgers has had an opportunity to shout it down, and he hasn't. And after he spoke to Tirico and authorized Tirico, presumably to say what he said, that's where we are. That's what we've heard directly. The closest thing to what we've directly heard from Aaron Rodgers is what he said to Tirico. And it seemed to confirm that there is a major situation unfolding between player and team, even though we may not know all of the specifics. So until he speaks, Peter, that's the closest he's come to speaking. And that's done nothing to push back against any of what we've been hearing, reporting on, speculating on, or otherwise filling the void because he won't come out and say what he wants, what the problem is, whether he's going to show up, however it's going to play out between him and the Packers. Um, The one thing I I think that we can fairly say is there are some commonalities between the Aaron Rodgers story and the Russell Wilson story in that in the Aaron Rodgers story, Basically, you know, it isn't so much of what Aaron Rodgers basically has said. It's what has leaked out around him. Now, Russell Wilson said some things to Dan Patrick, obviously. But I do think that a lot of this, Mike, is about when when Russell Wilson was talking about how, hey, listen, I just want to be, I just want to be kept apprised. I just want to be part of even the 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 sort of the netherworld decision making process. I want to be more involved in what we're calling in the game. I want you know that stuff. I don't want to tell John Schneider who to pick, but if we got a practice squad receiver that has got to be elevated, and we got three practice squad receivers or or two, I'd like to have a say in which one because I can tell them which one I most have chemistry with. I think a lot of that stuff is the same with Aaron Rodgers. I think. My sense is he just doesn't think they value his opinion in any way. And so that probably, to me, is something that's going to have to get fixed if he goes back. And and I don't think, quite honestly, that that's that hard to get fixed. Really, I don't. I mean, is there anything that would be so difficult about Aaron Rodgers having a conversation once a week or once every 10 days with Brian Gutekunst about the roster or about the guys he likes or anything like that. In my opinion, this is this is just what I think. We're in a different era of sports, Mike, 
And I can hear a lot of people right now saying, hey, it's not his job. The Packers are doing just fine without him. I get it. It's not his job. But I'm going to tell you one thing, that in 2018, Sean Payton allowed me into his Saturday night meeting with his quarterbacks and his offensive staff. And Drew Brees sat there and told him what he wanted to call in the course of the game. And I asked Payton at the end of that meeting, these 46 plays that Brees likes, how many do you hope you, you can call tomorrow? He goes, I'm going to try to call every one. And so, and I, that isn't personnel, but that is the kind of inclusivity that I think that Aaron Rodgers is looking for. I got two points to make. And the first one is that there are similarities, I agree with you, between Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson. There's one big difference, however. The Seahawks have not drafted Wilson's eventual replacement and gotten to a That's point true. in Wilson's contract where they have year-to-year -year flexibility. That's the thing that Rodgers has wanted to blow up. And, Peter, I heard from that 48-hour period right after the NFC Championship when Rodgers first introduced this concept that maybe my future is in doubt before he cleaned it up, and he, cl and he cleaned it up then. That's what makes the silence this time around even more deafening. But the idea that he wanted certainty, he didn't want to be a year-to-year -year employee, he didn't want to have this specter of Jordan Love looming over him, this idea that they're using Jordan Love to manipulate him to be pissed off just enough to go out and have an MVP performance, and if he doesn't, we're going to go to Jordan Love, and then we're going to trade you. That's the big difference between Wilson and Rodgers. But as to the point that some of these old-school, crusty football guys, and you made the point in Football Morning in America this week that this Gutekunst mindset as it relates to Rodgers dates back to Ron Wolf. Employees are here. Management is here. Players play. Coaches coach. General managers generally manage. Everybody has their role. I'm a firm believer that if a team expects the quarterback to essentially be the manager on the shop floor, <clears throat> expects the quarterback to set the example by showing up earlier than everyone else, by staying later than everyone else, by holding his coworkers accountable in a way that only a coworker can, you want the quarterback to do all these things that make him a quasi-member of management, and then when it's time to show up to the manager's lounge or the retreat or the meeting, they tell you, no, sorry, managers only. That, that attitude doesn't right. reconcile with everything they want quarterbacks in today's game to do. I couldn't agree more. And I, I also think that, you know, <clears throat> if your most important employee, who you're giving 15 to 18% of the salary cap to every year, if he's your most important employee, don't you want to make absolutely sure that that employee is relaying positive messages throughout the team that he leads. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, the eye rolling that Aaron Rodgers has done at times in the last year or so or however long it's been, you know, over various things that happen in this organization. You don't want your quarterback to be doing that. It's like, I would bet Drew Brees is... I, I, quite honestly, a great representative or was a great representative for Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton, the GM and coach in the New Orleans locker room. And that's because he felt valued. He felt like he was involved. And, and so I think the other big part of this, Mike, is that 
when Aaron Rodgers goes to work every day, he wants to feel, in my opinion, like he is valued, like he ha- he it's okay if he went up and he told the boss his opinion about something. And I just think right now, he feels like I am totally not valued. My opinion is not valued. And so I think that is where... That's bigger than the contract. It's bigger than everything right now. And that somehow, some way has to get fixed. But like I, I, I was going to say before, Mike, that, that Mark Murphy, in my opinion, can fix this. You know, the president of the Packers, he can fix this. He can basically, mandate is too strong a word, but he could suggest, I would not be surprised at all if in these, fly, uh, these uh, flights to the West Coast, have resulted in them saying, okay, here's what we will do in the future. Whether that has happened or whether it will happen, Mark Murphy can definitely make that happen. My best understanding, Peter, is there have been three such trips this offseason in an effort to placate Aaron Rodgers. But obviously, whatever has been said during those meetings or otherwise hasn't worked which is one of the reasons why we are where we are. So are they at impasse? Have they done everything they can to try to find a middle ground and they have just decided there is no middle ground, we have to do what we have to do, and that remains to be seen what each side will do. You mentioned the eye-rolling that Aaron Rodgers can do to influence teammates. We have reports this week indicating he's doing more than simply rolling his eyes. The report from Bob McGinn of The Athletic that in group text messages – He refers derisively, Rodgers does, to Brian Gutekunst as Jerry Krause, although every GM in the NFL should love to be Jerry Krause because he put together a team that won six championships. But when you use Jerry Krause in that context, it's not complimentary. It's because he was the reviled general manager who screwed up the Bulls and was responsible for the last dance and tore it all down, and Michael Jordan hated him, and that was the context Jerry Krause used it in. And then, Peter... The report from Mike Garofalo of NFL Media that Rodgers was telling Packers players who were going to become free agents, I'm not going to be here next year. Factor that into your planning for your own football future. That's an example, as is the group text, of tangible things a quarterback can do to undermine a teammate's faith in the right. organization. Yeah, and I think those things, you're, you're absolutely right. Those things, look... I, maybe he said that to Corey Lindsley. I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe the Packers, uh, you know, just understood that somebody was going to blow Corey Lindsley out of the water with an offer, which you know he got a great deal in with the Chargers. But be that as it may, you know, I definitely think the uh, the Jerry Krause stuff that Bob McGinn wrote about that'd be really concerning to me. Um, but I also agree with you. This. The, this stuff, I kind of think it's revisionist history. And look, I'm not a huge basketball guy. But the fact is, Jerry Krause, you know, I, I think he did not draft Michael Jordan, but he basically constructed the team in full after that. So uh, I understand that he is derisively referred to, but he also did a pretty good job in building a championship team as well. They didn't necessarily give him that credit, 
in The Last Dance. Right. He came off as the villain. Every good story needs a villain. He came off as the villain, and I think that's where the motivation to call Gutekunst Jerry Krause came from. Peter, I have a theory that in the absence of Aaron Rodgers speaking directly, he may be using some surrogates to get his message out, whether it's John Kuhn on CBS Sports Radio earlier this week talking about how the situation is fixable to James Jones, close friend and former teammate of Aaron Rodgers, who was on NFL Network yesterday, repeatedly saying that the situation is fixable. It's not about getting the GM fired. It's all about making sure we have the key guys we need to win championships. I can't help but wonder whether or not those individuals are laying the foundation for Rodgers conceding, recognizing that the Packers are dug in, they're not going to trade him, their attitude is, or maybe should be, pay us back $30 million and retire if you want, we're not trading you, we don't want to find out the alternate history of what happens when Aaron Rodgers goes to the Broncos and wins a championship or two, and then maybe after three or four years, the Broncos decide to let him go and he comes back to the NFC North and plays for the Vikings like Brett Favre did. We don't want to go through that again. We're content to take back $30 million and use that to buy other players and move on with Jordan Love if that's what you want to do. We're not giving in. And if Rodgers realizes that, he needs a way to save face. He needs a path back to the locker room. And I can't help but wonder whether or not guys like Kuhn and Jones are paving that, that path for him to eventually show up and say, hey, I'm, I'm here to play football. I'm here to win championships. I'm here to entertain the fans at Lambeau Field. Let's get to work and not have people say, what in the hell is going on here? I feel like Kuhn and Jones have either directly or indirectly been commissioned to lay the foundation for that. Your thoughts on my cockeyed theory? I don't know. I, I'm... I- I don't have any reason to think you're right or that you're wrong. I, I don't, because I, I just don't know. My information last weekend was that this was probably not fixable and that Aaron Rodgers was not going to play for the Packers anymore. And so, but, but look, and so look, if, if you were to ask me, what's the percentage chance he's going to play? I'd, I'd say for the Packers, I'd say it's less than 50, 50, but it's just, it's, it's May 7th, you know? There's basically three months to go before anything really matters. It, 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 you know, actually uh, four months before anything really matters. But the, the one other thing I would say, Mike, is that when you think about all this, you also have to think about, you know, what the two sides, the message the two sides want to get across. You know, you saw Brian Gutekunst talk to me. Brian Gutekunst talked to Albert Breer over the weekend. And he told us both that he told Albert, we are not trading Aaron Rodgers. And he told me, we are resolute. You know, we, you know we're not trading Aaron Rodgers, basically. And so that, that's the message that the Packers are getting across now. And Aaron Rodgers' message is that he doesn't want to play for the team anymore. Now, what is going to happen on, you know, August 7th, let's say, you know, three months from now, you know, that's a long time. And that's why I think it's always wise in cases like this, you got to leave some wiggle room because you can say whatever you want at this time of, of year, but things change. Time has a way of healing things.
Well, and who has the wiggle room? The Packers haven't left much wiggle room for themselves. Their attitude is we're not trading him. They could get an offer they can't refuse. They still could refuse it. The Bengals may have gotten an offer they can't refuse last year from the Dolphins. So the Dolphins could go get Joe Burrow. They refused it. The Packers could say, no, this is it. This is our quarterback. Let me run another theory by you, because this is something Sims and I have been talking about this week. The dynamic in Green Bay, where there isn't one person who can make decisions with zero accountability to anyone else. There's no owner. And my cockeyed theory on Mark Murphy, the CEO, is that whatever move he makes here, there could be ramifications moving forward. And the one move that prevents him from being proven wrong is saying, go ahead and retire, pay us back $30 million. we'll reinvest that money in other players, and we'll never know what may have been if Aaron Rodgers finished his career somewhere else. I won't be made to look foolish for handing a championship or two to the Broncos. I won't have to worry for the next three or four years that the dominoes fall in a way that leads Aaron Rodgers back to the division. You know, with Brett Favre, they had no choice. Brett Favre showed up unexpectedly and said, deal with me. And they said, fine, we're going to trade you. We're not going to cut you. We're not going to pay you $12 million to be Aaron Rodgers' backup. We've moved on from you. They had to do something with Brett Favre because he was retired and he came back. If Rodgers doesn't want to play for the Packers anymore and the Packers don't want him to play for anyone else anymore, I feel like that's a better move for Mark Murphy because you can't prove Mark Murphy wrong if Aaron Rodgers never plays again. Yeah, but I think Murphy's I think Murphy's goal in this, honestly, you know, and I know Mark Murphy pretty well. His goal in this is to find peace in our time. It just is. His goal is to make sure that Aaron Rodgers comes back and when he does come back that they're one big happy family, no matter how really happy they are. So that's why I think, you know, before, Mike, you ask, what is the next step? And I asked Gudikins that the other day. And he said, well, you know, he, he wouldn't say. It, it, you know, he, they want to handle this thing privately. But in my opinion, the next step has to be some sort of olive branch extended by Murphy. I think... I think it'd be smart to just let things cool off for two or three weeks. Forget about the off-season program. You know, let Jordan Love get all the reps. Let, you know, he needs that anyway. So just let Jordan Love do everything in the off-season program. And if Rodgers is going to skip the mandatory minicamp in June and take the $95,000 in fines or whatever it is, let Jordan Love handle everything as the quarterback. You know, and but what's most important now, I think, the thing cools off and Mark Murphy goes in with an olive branch. What it will be, I don't know. But that is what I think is the most logical next step. And there is an opportunity over the next few weeks for something like that to happen. But the OTAs, the on-field practices that are the opportunity to lay the foundation for what the team is going to learn and implement in training camp. If he doesn't show up for that, that's an overt act that will create headlines. The mandatory mini camp not showing up for that is the proverbial or literal middle finger to the Packers. That will be headlines. And then for the Packers, that shareholders meeting in July every year before training camp, that could get interesting as well if this hasn't been resolved by then. But there will be decision points. There will be action items as this continues to unfold. And you're right. There, there's an opportunity now 
and I think the Packers are wishing and hoping and praying that some other major story will come along and knock Aaron Rodgers off the top of the stack. It hasn't happened in eight days. Who knows when it's going to happen? But they're waiting for that. Now, along the way, and that's the... <laughs> um, <laughs> here's, here's uh, thank you, The Onion. Um, at one point this week, Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers texted, and Favre said to Rodgers, I have a feeling you're going to be playing for the Saints this year, and Rodgers said that's not going to happen. And I think we can confidently say that's not going to happen, even if Rodgers doesn't play for the Packers. And I mentioned the Saints because Sean Payton was on with Rich Eisen, Recently, here's Sean Payton talking about his team's quarterback situation post Drew Brees. I think the furthest we went with that would have been, you know, when everyone was healthy and Taysom was playing, oh, call it eight to 10 plays, maybe a quarterback. I, I would never discount that, but I would say this, you know, he, he knows, and, and so does Jameis, that. We're looking to find the guy that's going to lead our team this year. And that doesn't mean the other player is not going to have a role. But certainly it, it varies. You know, if, if Jameis is starting, obviously Taysom has a role that expands not only just offensively, but on special teams, et cetera. And, and if it's the other way around, it's probably a little bit more limited uh, just relative to, to what Jameis would do. And then that transition has begun and, you know, we, we look at then a lot of what we're going to do offensively based on who's doing it and then how do we put an offense around those players or that players. That was specifically Peyton talking about the possibility of using both quarterbacks, Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston. So, look, I think the goal is they want one guy, and Peyton acknowledged that. They don't want to have rotating quarterbacks. You could have a Taysom Hill package if Jameis Winston is the starter, and I guess you could have a Jameis Winston package if Taysom Hill is the starter, but they want a starter. They're not going to go with a two-quarterback platoon system. One of these guys is going to step up and win that job. It's either going to be Winston or it's going to be Hill, and you could make the argument for either guy, and and we'll, we'll see what happens. Hill did pretty well last year when Drew Brees was injured. Winston had his moments, too, when he had a chance to play, including the touchdown pass on the gimmick play in the playoff game against the Buccaneers. So uh, that's going to be one of the most fascinating camp battles we've seen in a while, Peter. Who emerges between Hill and Winston as the successor to Drew Brees? You know, if, if, if I had to, you know, if I had to guess right now, I'd bet I'd guess Winston. Um, and it's going to be all, it's going to be all up to uh, Winston and how he takes care of the football, both in practice and whenever he plays in the preseason games. Because it's clear, you know, I remember somebody very close to Sean Payton when this happened, when they signed Jameis Winston, and I expressed a slight surprise at, you know, the Saints finding enough money in the couch cushions, you know, when they were very much against the cap, you know, that they found a million bucks or whatever it was to sign Jameis Winston. And, you know, and I was told at the time that he will last five minutes if he in New Orleans with Sean Payton, if he turns it over. So to me, I think Sean Payton is looking at this as I've given the guy one year and Drew Brees has given the guy one year. Brees really liked Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston loved Drew Brees. And he learned a lot from Brees. And that one of the big things I'm told he learned, Mike, is learn how to fight another day. You know, in other words, 
Don't make a stupid decision that's going to cost your team a turnover. And so those are the kind of things that we'll see if Jameis Winston has learned that. And we'll see if he's gotten significantly markedly better. I'm not naive enough to say that just because he played for the Saints for a year and he learned under Peyton and Breeze that he's not going to turn it over anymore. That's that's silly. So if he proves he's not going to turn it over anymore, I think he'll be the guy. But he's got to prove it. Well, and, and in fairness to Jameis Winston, his five years before coming to New Orleans with Sean Payton and Drew Brees consisted of Dirk Cutter, who no one should ever confuse with Bill Walsh, and Mr. No-Risk-It-No-Biscuit Bruce Arians. He doesn't care about turnovers unless you have too many of them, then you're out the door. No-Risk-It-No-Biscuit. Now he's with Payton and Brees. He cares about 30 when, interceptions, though. <laughs> yes, yes. But when Brees retired, Jameis Winston had a session with the media visibly emotional about Drew Brees. Yeah. So this is a guy who was the undisputed first overall pick in the draft. We knew the Buccaneers wanted him. They tanked for him week 17 of the 2014 season. It's proven. It's established. It's factual. They wanted him instead of Marcus Mariota. Not that either guy ended up being a franchise quarterback. But he came into the league with high expectations. He's yet to fully live up to them. But, Peter, in the year that he did have 30 interceptions, he also became one of the few guys in league history to throw for 5,000 yards. Every other guy who's done it, is either in the Hall of Fame, on his way to the Hall of Fame, has an argument for the Hall of Fame. Jameis Winston's the one guy that stands out as who doesn't belong and why. But you, yeah, look, this, this would be the ultimate reclamation project for Sean Payton if he turns Jameis Winston into the guy he was supposed to be coming out of Florida State. I mean, he might be able to do that. Um, and I think a little more highly of the coaches that uh, – that Jameis Winston had than you do, Mike. I think he. You're entitled to you're entitled you to your know, opinion. Uh, Arians, they, yes. Cutter, he, don't get me started on Dirk Cutter, but Arians, yes. But but he but but let's just talk about quarterback coaching with Dirk Cutter, okay? Not head coaching. Those are two different things. I remember when Jameis Winston went in for his uh, you know pre-draft visit to Tampa, and he sat down with Dirk Cutter. Dirk Cutter noticed that, I forget how many interceptions he threw his last year at Florida State, 14, 17, I, I forget what number it was. But he, at one point, Jameis Winston said to Dirk Cutter, I've got confidence I can make every throw. And Dirk Cutter said to him, in essence, well, it's good to have that confidence, but I'm looking at some of these throws and you shouldn't have made them. You know, So maybe you shouldn't be all that confident about throw X, Y, and Z you know, where you throw it into really tight coverage and you throw it right to the defense. So I think Dirk Cutter was was hard on Jameis Winston at, you know, at the requisite times. And his message just didn't get through. Would that have gotten through with Peyton in those five years? Who knows? Maybe yes. But I think that it's faulty logic to say that he went to the wrong team to cure his turnover-itis. I think... You know, he, we don't know that. And if Sean Payton does fix him now, then, you know, we'll, we'll tip the cap to Sean Payton. But I think that he's, he has to show that he can do it, Mike. When Cutter became the head coach, probably less hands-on coaching of Jameis Winston. It reminds me of what happened in Cleveland when Freddie Kitchens became the head coach and was no longer coaching Baker Mayfield directly. Mayfield went off the rails in 2019. The other reality is this. 
I think we can agree, Sean Payton, one of the finest quarterback coaches in the history of the game. Other than Andy yes. Reid right now, I can't imagine another guy who Winston would be in as good of a position with. And obviously, Reid's got his quarterback for the foreseeable future and beyond. Peyton doesn't. And and this is his chance. And and it's you, a great you contrast in styles. Go ahead. You know what else he has? He has an offense with a truly great wide receiver, a truly great running back, and uh, two really good tackles. Okay, so, I mean, and look, the Saints are in the not rebuilding phase of, of their post-Breeze life because they can still be really good. But they have a lot of offensive elements. You, know, you look at Traquan Smith even. They have a lot of offensive elements that I believe are really good and just add QB is really what they need to do. And we're going to see if Winston can take advantage of that. And the last point in this regard, Sean Payton will not hesitate to make a change if whoever wins that job right. as of week one isn't performing to his satisfaction. That pressure will be there from week one through week 18. Still weird to say week 18, but there will be 18 weeks for whoever starts to falter and possibly yield to the other guy. Jared Goff has no such worries in Detroit because, among other things, the Lions have not drafted a potential long-term quarterback. They had that seventh overall pick. They created enough of a sense that maybe they were looking at quarterback to get people to wonder, would they take a quarterback at seven? Jared Goff, the guy for the foreseeable future. Here's Goff meeting with reporters yesterday talking about his pleasure over the fact that the Lions did not take a quarterback in the draft. Yeah, we had some talks uh, before the draft. And um, I, I, again, I think it's a, it's a nice vote of confidence, obviously, for me. And um, I think what's not lost on me is, is that their first move is, as, as a staff with Brad and Dan was involved me. So I, it's exciting and, and it makes you feel good. Just bizarre to say Lions quarterback Jared Goff, another example of how <laughs> dramatically the NFL can change in any one offseason. And the Lions have cast their lot with this guy. They, they took on a big contract. They picked up a couple of first-round picks and a third-round pick. And bye-bye uh, Matthew Stafford, who was a very, very good quarterback. And now Goff gets to come in as part of this new culture. You know, it's possible – even though I think Stafford is a much better quarterback, passer, everything you could ask for in a quarterback than Goff, all due respect to Goff, the team could have more success with Goff because maybe this time, after 60 years of swinging and missing, they finally put together the mindset that's necessary for the Lions to be a winning organization. Look, you know, I noticed this over the weekend when you see the, the Lions all fired up in their draft room with, New GM Brad Holmes, new coach, um, you, you know, their, their scouts, their, everybody is in there so excited after they make that Panay Sewell pick. But I guess the point I would make is sometimes those things are really, really important because you have to really want, to, part of being good is you have to really want to be good. And I sit back at some of the Lions regimes and watch in the last few years. And you have to ask yourself about, like, Matt Patricia. You know, you wonder, you really, really wonder about Matt Patricia. And whether by the time last year where he became a little bit more touchy-feely, you have to wonder if 
the players had just tuned him out. And I think many of them had. They had to get rid of Darius Slay because of that. I think Dan Campbell's whole idea is we are going to own this. Like, look at this. You know, to me, I, I, I just think that is a really cool example of how happy and how good they feel after taking a guy they know could be transformative for their franchise. You know, it's funny, Peter. We had Brad Holmes on the show yesterday, and I asked him right out of the gates, is the explanation for that moment that you guys had asked for decaf coffee and they accidentally brought in caffeinated? But he said, no, that, that it was pure raw emotion of the moment. And it was great. We had fun with Brad Holmes yesterday. We'll have the video posted at PFT. Uh, but yeah, the Rams gave up on Goff. The Lions giving him a chance with all these cultural changes they're making. And at some point, if you're the Lions, at some point, aren't you going to stumble into something that works? After all these iterations and attempts and failed regimes, just the law of averages, Peter. At some point, it's just going to happen despite whatever flaws you may have in putting a team together. You're going to accidentally put together the right mixture. And wherever that kernel came from to do what they're doing with Chris Spielman, and I really do think he's a big piece of this, bigger than we realize. But but uh, this old school mentality, the kneecap biter stuff, we've had fun with that phrase, but it's a mentality that a lot of teams don't have nowadays. And when there's a small handful of teams like that, it, it's jarring to the other teams when they come up against it. And, you know, look, where we're really going to be able to tell Mike uh, about sort of the color and the verve and the passion of this program, we're going to be able to tell during this season. And, okay, so they play the season, whatever happens, happens. But during this season, what's going to happen is that other players around the league are going to look at the Detroit Lions And you look at what Panay Sewell said in his press conference. And he basically said, hey, listen, we got life in the D or whatever his his cool quote was. But that is what other players could be drawn to. Let's say the Lions go nine and eight. They barely miss the playoffs, but they're on the rise a little bit. Goff plays well. And then in the offseason, X free agent and Y free agent and Z free agent say, to their agent, hey, listen, let's talk to the Lions if they have any interest at all. That's the kind of stuff you want to get players who want to play for your franchise. There is a cold war that is heating up between the NFL and the NFL Players Association over the issue of off-season workouts. We're going to get you up to speed on the latest developments and what's to come in this fight between management and labor when PFT Live continues right after this. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. 
Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Earlier this week, Broncos tackle Juwan James suffered an Achilles tendon tear while working out away from the facility. Working out to get ready for football season... But it sets the stage for James to not be paid. Players like Patrick Mahomes confused by the fact that a team could take away a guy's money for working out in the offseason. That has sparked a couple of memos. One by the NFL to all teams reminding them of something they already knew about. If a player gets injured away from work, he's not covered. There are certain protections a player has when he shows up at the facility and suffers an injury there that he doesn't have when he suffers an injury away from the facility, even if he is working out to get ready for football season. That memo to the teams was viewed as a gratuitous middle finger to the union because the teams already knew. This was a an effort to, to get the players' attention. And so yesterday, Peter, the NFLPA responded with a memo of its own to all players, calling the memo by the league gutless and a scare tactic aimed at getting players to show up. Because the point is, hey, if you're working out on your own and you get injured, you're going to lose a lot of money. You better come to work. The problem is, if you're working out on your own and you get injured, you're going to lose a lot of money. You probably should go to work. That's, that's, that's the flaw in the NFLPA's position. Juwan James is the example of what happens. And I think they may have some argument to make that because James was following a workout regimen given to him by the team when he got injured away from work that maybe maybe at the end of a three-year fight you win that. I don't think he will. You want to avoid the fight altogether. You do that workout regimen that the team gave you at the team's building, then you never have to go down that path. You never have that money in doubt. So it's unfortunate that it's come to this for Jawan James. And I think every player needs to ask himself, do I want to put myself at risk, my family at risk, my money at risk, my future at risk by working out away from the facility if I get an injury? Uh, But the bigger reality is, right or wrong, this is becoming a very real pressure point, Peter, for the league and the union. You know, Mike, uh, I I had a club official this week call me and say, what's your stance on uh, on this workout thing with the union? And I said, you know, I don't really care about voluntary workouts. I, I, you know, I really don't. I don't think that voluntary workouts should mean they're voluntary, but they're really mandatory. However, I don't like when, uh, when the union says to players, don't go. Well, put yourself in the position, let's say, of a minimum salary guy. Let's say a guy who's working to make a team. You know, he's an undrafted free agent and he wants to do everything in his power to make the team. So he starts going to these workouts at the club facility. 
and you know he he basically gets to know his teammates he's he, he basically is getting ready to hit the ground running once training camp begins how is it in that player's best interest who's one of your union members how is it in his best interest to not show up until the mandatory mini camp in or or the or the mandatory rookie mini camp and then don't show up at all and after that until training camp I don't I don't understand that. And the other part of it, you know, as this as this person told me, said, "Listen, a guy comes in here, he works out in state of the art facilities. He gets lunch and breakfast, uh, you know, with with perfect food, you know, with dietitians and 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 all that. And if he wants to, if he chooses to, he can duck into a room and watch some tape." Now, he doesn't have to, but he could if he wanted to. I understand that the union says all that stuff is what makes this verge on the mandatory. Because if, if guys who don't do it feel like they're getting left behind. But if they thought this was such a big deal, then they should have made it a bigger deal in the negotiations when they did the new contract uh, with, the, with the league last year. And they didn't make it a big deal with the with the with the league last year. They got some concessions on off-season workouts, but they did not get the concession that says, "Hey, we're going to encourage our guys to not show up for these workouts that can help you make the team." The only way to make that happen is to reduce or eliminate the workouts, which is what some veteran players want. And as it relates to the rookies, there was a conference call earlier this week with agents who represent the rookies and the rookies if they wanted to participate most most just don't most don't care most don't pay attention they'll listen to their agents but there was some pushback from the agents because they want the rookies to not show up for anything but the mandatory minicamp the rookie minicamp isn't mandatory they don't want it to show up for anything and I was talking to a coach about it this week I mean number one these guys get free lodging as they're making the transition to their new city they put them up in a hotel during the off-season program, rookie minicamp and beyond. They got six, seven weeks where they can be looking for an apartment, looking for a house while they have a place to stay and they're not paying for it. And they get their food. And they're able to get acquainted with teammates and coaches and facilities and where you're going to be and what it looks like and how it feels instead of just being thrown into it cold for the mandatory minicamp and then training camp. And, you know, I, Sims and I went through this yesterday, Peter, and I talked to a coach about this as well. For rookies, right? The dividing line between the guys who can get away with not showing up and the guys who can't. And my best guess is after round two, you better be there. Because if you're round three, good luck getting on the field this year if you piss off your coach by not showing up for the workouts. Round four, five, six, seven, you're in danger of being cut when the roster goes from 90 to 53. And the undrafted guys, an undrafted guy going to exercise his right to not show up for the offseason program, okay, fine. Don't even bother to unpack your bags if you're an undrafted guy and you're not going to bother to show up to begin the competition to make the very steep climb from 90th guy on the roster to 53rd guy on the roster. That's why I think it's easy for the veterans to say don't show up to everybody. And like those agents, and I didn't, I didn't know what you just said, that the agents were, were, were challenging this. Uh, but... Look, if you're an agent and you're the agent of a dump, of an of an undrafted free agent from Moorhead State, 
that guy, all he cares about is making the team. And to me, it's unfair to tell that guy he cannot show up on campus until June 10th. It's just, it's not, it's not fair. Just isn't fair. And so it's the same thing, Mike. Remember when we had this discussion about voting for the CBA? And I made the point that the vote was 1,019 to 959. And in essence, it was the vote. It was, it was two players per locker room. The average vote per team was 32 to 30. 32 in favor of the CBA, 30 against. We can guess what all of that was, but I would certainly guess that an awful lot of the 32 who approved it were the lower salaried guys, okay? And so that's what this reminds me of. It's a battle between the, you know, the millionaires and the have-nots. And that's how this seems to me. But I simply don't understand when you did not win this right, in, in, you know, and, and it isn't a right because all it is is a voluntary workout. But I don't think that it's a good idea for the union to be telling guys, don't go. It's just, it doesn't help all of your members. Because the members have so many diverse and conflicting interests, and ultimately it is a competition among 90 union brothers for 53 roster spots. And, and that in and of itself makes it different from the normal union where everyone truly is banded together because everyone in the union has a job and will keep a job unless they engage in the kind of misconduct necessary to get them fired. By the way, the folks at Moorhead State should be very thrilled with this program. That is two Moorhead State references this week. 40% of the show in this week has had a Moorhead State reference. Has Peter, mentioned Moorhead State? Moorhead State came up, State came up early. Brain. <laughs> well, that's right, because Phil Sims was the first one AA player drafted in round one when they split Division One into the higher level and the lower level. He was the first lower-level Division One guy to be taken in round one back in 1979. And Chris said he's got all kind of great stories about the, the extent to which coaches and GMs came to Moorhead State to check out this yeah. guy who ended up being a top-ten pick. It's amazing to think about it. Guy from Moorhead State, not Oklahoma, not Nebraska, not Penn State, not Notre Dame. Quarterback from Moorhead State ends up being the Giants quarterback and ends up doing pretty damn well. Let's take a break. When we return, Eric DaCosta, the Ravens GM, had some things to say before the draft about the team's receivers. He's had some things to say after the draft about the team's receivers. We'll let you hear what he's had to say more recently when PFT Live continues right after this. You had a great quote from one of your pre-draft press conferences about the receiver position, and you said that the receivers on the team are insulted by the perception that the receivers aren't very good, and you're personally insulted by it. And it was great. We played it on one of our shows. We reacted to it. And then you drafted two receivers, one in round one and one in round four. How do we reconcile what you said about the receivers before the draft with the fact that you drafted two more? Well, it was before the draft. You know, and, and what I would say is like anybody that tries to read too much into what people said before the draft, you know, they're acting foolish. And, you know, we're trying to win. Everything we do is based on does this help our club win? Does this put us in the best position to win? So, yeah, as you know, Mike, you write about it all the time. 
There's a lot of foolishness being said before the draft, anonymous scouts and things like that. We don't really play that game. But for me to stand up there and, and talk about how we're going to build the team, you know, before the draft is probably not the smartest thing in the world. So uh, what I said really in, in my intentions was that I believe our receivers do want to be the best. They do care about that. And we believe in those guys. Um, we're still going to build the very best team we can build at any point now before the season during training camp after the season whatever that might be there's gamesmanship involved and there's a strategy involved and for me to go up there and say we're going to draft a receiver in the first round that would be foolish and everybody should understand that um on the other hand i do believe in our receivers uh you know very strongly i do believe in those guys i do believe in hollywood brown miles boyk and devon duvernay james prochet sammy watkins we do believe in those guys. Uh, we also believe in Bateman. We also believe in, in Thielen Wallace as well. And we think we've really you know, strengthened that class of players, and that's going to make us a better offense. That was Eric DeCosta from PFTPM. I love it when they admit that the stuff they say before the draft is BS because by the time we get to next year's draft and the run-up to it, we will have forgotten that. And they're going to say what they say. It gets reported. It gets repeated. And some of it's true, maybe coincidentally. But, yeah, no one is going to come out and say, man, we really need receivers in this draft. We are going to go heavy for receivers. We're really not happy with the guys we have. We can't get free agents to come here and play in a run-based offense. Yeah, we're going after receivers. So that's what what they got to do. But it's just refreshing that someone will admit that, Peter. But what exactly did Eric DaCosta say before the draft? He said, essentially, I am ticked off at everybody ripping our receivers. We like our receivers. And he used stronger language than that. But that's in essence what he said. And I believe that he really does like Devin DuVernay. Now, does he think that Devin DuVernay is a number one receiver? Probably not. You know, does he think that Hollywood Brown has the stuff to stay on the field for 58 snaps a game? Probably not. You know, so, but I I do not think that what he said before the draft necessarily means that they're not taking any receivers high in this draft. Well, but I think when you come out and say it's insulting to suggest we don't have good receivers, they're insulted by it, Yeah, I'm insulted by it. The implication is we're sufficiently pleased with them. Not, you know, they've got a good personality, but we're pleased with their performance that we don't feel as compelled to upgrade the position as outsiders may think. So it would tend to throw people That is off not at all sense. what I took from what he said, though. I did yeah. not take that at all, Mike. What I took is that stay off our, our receivers' backs. You know, I, 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 got, I got the backs of my guys. You know, I am pro Devin DuVernay. I love Miles Boykin. I love these guys. Now, you can say that, and then you can still draft Rashad Bateman 27th overall. Those are not mutually exclusive things. Those are standing up for the guys on your team and then fixing a part of your team that you believe could be better. And I think that's what this is about. I, and I understand that everybody said, whoa, look at what DaCosta said and all that. But honestly, I think most GMs would say that before the draft about a position 
on their roster that's under attack from outsiders. Well, that's probably just being a good manager, but at the same time, management has found some new employees, both in round one and in round four, who could supplant individuals that they think are very nice people and they like very much and would be good enough, but there are better options. And it gets back to what we were talking about with the union. It's a zero-sum game. There's only so many jobs. You have opportunities to stand out or not stand out. And the off-season program is part of that opportunity. So when Bateman and Wallace enter the fray, assuming they show up for the off-season program, they get a chance to catch the eye of DaCosta and John Harbaugh and everyone else who's monitoring to determine who are the ones that they should make, not just part of the roster, but put on the field in the two and three and four receiver packages. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we return, Peter has done some work this week with teams like the Jaguars and the Dolphins, talking to people involved in their drafts and moving forward post-draft into the 2021 season. We'll delve into that when this Friday edition of PFT Live continues right after this. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 